Hello and welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and we have a great episode today all about emesis induction based on an algorithm that was published in the January-February 2021 edition of Clinician's Brief. Like many of our articles, this piece had two amazing authors, and we were lucky enough to find a time when both of them could sit down with us. So today, we'll be talking with not one, but two clinical professors in emergency and critical care at Auburn University, Drs. Kendon Coe and Katherine Gerken. Hi, Docs. How are you doing? Hi there. Uh, doing really well. We're feeling awesome. Happy to be here. <laughs> That's wonderful. We're glad both of you could join us. Um, but before we jump in, would each of you just take a minute to introduce yourself and maybe tell the audience why you got into emergency and critical care? All right, sure. I'm uh, Kenan Coe. I am originally from California and uh, yeah, lived in California my whole life, went to vet school out there, ended up doing a internship at Auburn University and basically never left. So stayed there for both my internship and residency and then stayed on as a faculty member. Why did I choose emergency and critical care? Um, I think for me, uh, having an appointment schedule is uh, pretty boring. And so I just like to be surprised. Yeah. And uh, for myself, I actually ended up doing my undergraduate degree and vet school here at Auburn and actually got to be a student while Dr. Coe was a resident back, back in the day, I'm going to say not too long ago. But uh, then I moved on and did my internship uh, at Mississippi State and my residency in emergency critical care at The Ohio State. And then when it came time to look for a job, I reached out to Dr. Ko, and fortunately there was a position available. So got to move back this way. Uh, my family all lives reasonably close. And the reason that I chose emergency and critical care was that uh, I had a strong fear of going into private practice and kind of getting bored with it, similar to Dr. Ko. But I also enjoy the um, different kind of caseload that comes at you every day, the variety and yeah, the unexpected, I think. That's wonderful. Um, so I ended up back, I'm originally from Iowa, but I ended up practicing out here in Las Vegas and a little bit of the same, I was drawn by family. I have one older brother and he's a emergency room physician. Um, but he always said that too. He said that the reason he wanted to do it was because if somebody said on a plane, like, is there a doctor on board? He wanted to be able to stand up and say yes and not be like, yeah, I'm a podiatrist. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Okay. So let's go ahead and get started about this because this is just a great topic, something in, uh, you know, I'm in general practice, been in general practice for 18 years. And this is always the, there's somebody on the phone and their dog ate something what do we do? So I love this algorithm. I, I love algorithms in general. I think they, you know, really help us make decisions, you know, using a good logical approach. And so, but before we talk about that, you know, I actually kind of want to talk like back up and talk about when not to induce emesis, because there's many times when the risk of inducing emesis kind of outweighs the benefits. And so your algorithm does provide that really nice tool to, to decide when emesis is indicated. And some of these risks are specific to the patient, but some are based on the toxicant or we even talk about foreign bodies, which I'm so glad you do because that comes up all the time. You know, should we use emesis for foreign bodies or not? 
So first off, hydrocarbons. Why do we not want to induce emesis when we have ingestion of hydrocarbons or petroleum-based products? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. Uh, for hydrocarbons or anything that's found kind of in the garage, they're designed to have a low viscosity. And so they're just really slippery. Uh, they're meant to, you know, keep things lubricated, engines and things like that. And so the fear there is if you uh, perform uh, emesis, could the patient aspirate that just because of that low viscosity? And so for those products, it's just a really, really high risk for aspiration pneumonia. And what about batteries? That's another one that I think I get a lot. You know, people say their dog chewed up the remote or whatever, swallowed a battery, and your algorithm says it's not really a simple yes or no answer. So, so talk to us a little bit about batteries. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think batteries, they do carry a large risk with them, but a lot of times we're not always sure whether or not batteries actually got ingested, did they roll under the sofa? Uh, and so there are quite a number of clinicians that would argue it's probably most helpful to at least get an x-ray of the patient and number one, see where that battery is, uh, if it was ingested, and number two, see if it looks like it's intact or not. So different types of batteries, you know, there's just a million different kinds now. And so it can be a little bit of a struggle to kind of look up which one's which, but the different types of batteries actually carry different types of risks. So things like the alkaline batteries, if they look like they've been chewed, then we definitely want to try and scope those out as opposed to inducing emesis because of the battery acid already kind of potentially already leaking and causing caustic action uh, as an irritant. But if it looks like it's intact and it looks like they swallowed them whole, we always hope for that, then it's uh, reasonably safe to go ahead and induce emesis because it should just be regurgitated or vomited up whole again. Now, things like the lithium or the disc uh, batteries, those should almost always be removed via scope or with surgery. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult since they're a flat uh, surfaced item to actually get those to be vomited up with induction. They tend to like to kind of stick to the sides, if you will. And so they need a little bit of uh, assistance coming up. Same thing with button batteries. This is where a radiograph is going to help you out the most. The button batteries, like in hearing aids and things like that, if those are in the esophagus, we definitely want to go ahead and do endoscopic removal because it's, it got stuck in the esophagus. It's probably not going to keep moving very well. Whereas if it's already made it to further parts of the GI tract, we can actually just do a bulk diet and hopefully that will help assist the battery to continue on its way. So regardless, you don't want to induce emesis for those because then I would think the the risk would be it getting, if it made it past the esophagus once, we don't want to give it a chance to get stuck there <laughs> get again. Stuck. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah, totally makes sense. So besides, you know, those, what other types of foreign bodies would you consider too risky for, for emesis induction? I guess just to add a little controversy to the batteries, um, I think when it comes to uh, kind of your dry cell battery or uh, things that you're worried about leaking contents, uh, some folks will argue if you scope those out, they could leak as you're dragging them up the esophagus. Um, I think it really kind of depends, you know, uh, oftentimes we'll go in with the scope first if the, you know, uh, clients can financially afford that. And then you can make kind of a judgment call if you're like, oh, this thing is really leaking. There's a lot of this battery goop coming out. Uh, the decision might be, hey, let's 
go to you know surgery instead just because as you drag that battery up that goop could get left behind in the esophagus so it's really we wanted to make the algorithm as clear as possible but i think uh, with batteries i think you know the type of battery whether it's leaking or not where it is in the gi tract all that kind of comes into play the finances obviously uh matter a lot as well um, and so sometimes, you know, we might recommend just bulking up a diet and seeing if that will pass. Sometimes if we're like, hey, can we do uh, a mesis, give them some bread and maybe they'll vomit that up. It's not ideal if there is obviously a leak there, but the owners can't afford to do anything else. These are kind of the conversations where it's really, you know, individual case by case to uh, decide. Yep, having that risk versus benefit conversation and goal of care, you know, with the client is really important in those those situations. There's the other consideration too of distance to get to a scope. And mm-hmm. so I think, uh, you know, we try to be all encompassing with the information that we provide. But one of the things is that if you're in an area where you can't get to endoscopy in a reasonable amount of time, it's going to take too long, that battery could definitely start to corrode, or there's question about whether or not there was puncture, then, you know, moving forward straight with a, a, a surgery procedure is definitely warranted. It, again, it just leads to a conversation with those owners and making sure that they have all the information that they can have to make a a good decision and also making sure that you give them, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of where your clinic is, what your skill level is, and the options in your area. That totally makes sense. So thank you for adding that little bit in. We'll return just quick to the, the question about other foreign bodies, rocks, knives, razor blades. I've seen some dogs swallow some pretty crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think uh, depending on the object, I think one question you have to ask is uh, what damage could you cause trying to you know, bring that back up? And so whether, you know, it's a knife or something else with, you know, sharp edges, that's always going to be a risky thing to do. In addition to just like a foreign body and it causing damage, uh, other things to consider would be similar to batteries. uh, Just, you know, if it's acidic, corrosive, those are going to obviously cause some damage on the way up or potential damage. And so uh, just thinking about, you know, what kind of damage you could cause before doing anything. So let's move on to signalment, um, you know, and and kind of patient factors. I know a lot of clinicians that are very wary of inducing emesis in brachycephalic breeds. So are there breeds that you just say, nope, we're not even going to try this with? Uh, I think that there are actually a few breeds specifically that we would be hesitant necessarily to uh, induce emesis if the circumstances are correct. But I think that there are definitely disease predispositions and or past history that would make us a little bit hesitant. So animals that have a history of things like, you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease have a history or recent history of um, of pneumonia, if they have evidence of pre-existing GI disease, that might make them. If they have, that might make them have a more difficult time uh, with emesis. If they have a known sliding hiatal hernia, that's obviously <laughs> not going to be our favorite one to try. And then some of our patients that have exhibited signs or have a history of potential laryngeal paralysis or laryngeal collapse uh, might be a higher risk factor, but it's not necessarily the breed that makes us stop. It's definitely what we find out from the owner about that patient. 
Yeah. And just to jump on that, I would say it'll kind of depend on what it is. If it's something that we're like, hey, they got into a toxin that's really dangerous. Uh, we need to be more aggressive with our decontamination. Uh, then I might, you know, despite the breed, decide to induce. If we're talking like uh, the chances after doing an exposure assessment aren't that bad, or this is not that bad of a toxin, uh, aspiration is a bigger risk to me. You know, if it's an English bulldog or something like that, then I might, you know, best to avoid that. Um, and then the other thing uh, that I can think of would be, you know, if a dog has, you know, mega esophagus or uh, similar to the other GI diseases mentioned, uh, I would definitely avoid uh, inducing. All right. So let's move on to when should we induce. Their uh, time frame is something that is always a big, a big issue. People call on the phone and say they got home and, you know, found such and such gut, you know, got into something while they were gone. So when we're talking about toxicants, do you have an ideal time frame? not foreign bodies, but toxicants? Yeah, uh, obviously for most things, the sooner the better. And so I think the best rule of thumb for most of us that we were taught is less than two hours is the most optimal time to try and induce emesis after you've deemed that it's safe. And I think the, the odds of you being able to successfully induce emesis are a bit higher if it's going to contain whatever in the vomitus, the toxicant, or the actual uh, harmful incident. Now, there are situations where the actual toxic agent can slow down your gastric uh, peristalsis and actually gastric emptying. And so things like chocolate in particular, actually slow down how quickly anything is passed through the pyloric sphincter. And so you actually have a time frame of up to eight hours to be able to uh, try and induce emesis at that juncture. Yep. Wow. I didn't know that. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, another thing to add on there would be, this is a area where I think uh, point of care ultrasound could really make a difference. And so oftentimes we're wondering, you know, is it still in the stomach? You know, it's been two hours, maybe it's not going to be productive. But now a lot of clinics are having, you know, bedside ultrasound where you could pop the probe on there and just take a look. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly if the gas is full of gas, it's going to be hard to image. And so you still might have to, you know, make a judgment call. Uh, but I think using that probe and getting an image and, you know, just using that as another piece of the puzzle to, to, to make a decision can be helpful as well. It also helps to make sure that you, you know, know if you're working with a full stomach versus an empty stomach. So using the, the point of care ultrasound is definitely one of those ways that's very helpful. Sometimes when there's a lot of gas in the stomach, that doesn't help us uh, the most. And so snapping a quick picture to see if that's going to be a successful point you know, seeing if there's any food material in the stomach at all on an x-ray, it can be really helpful because, you know, if they got into the garbage six hours ago and there is still a lot of stuff in the stomach, it might be worth your time versus, you know, we might have to talk to the owner about, do we try bulk feeding or do we try and wait it out? We're not really sure what was in the garbage today. So mm -hmm. might be a little bit more aggressive in that sense. And then when that's another thing that I sometimes have a hard time deciding is like, okay, when do I, I want to induce emesis? The stomach isn't really full of anything. Should I give a little food or a little something to help kind of bulk it up and hopefully bring up whatever it is with that? 
Yeah, I think that is one of those situations where uh, knowing what the potential toxin is, is very helpful. Uh, if it's something that uh, would be beneficial not to be absorbed throughout the GI tract, then I think absolutely, I would definitely probably feed them something and try to induce emesis. If it is something where it it's more likely just to cause a foreign body obstruction, but it's a question of like how much they even got into. Uh, it might be a situation where we try to just bull feed it and let it pass and see if we're able to allow the GI tract to do its own thing. And then I assume that that time frame recommendation just is very different for gastric foreign bodies. I know I personally have seen a foreign body that has been in the stomach of a dog for more than six months. So, and I've heard stories of years. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I think everybody has a, a, a differing opinion about whether or not we should chase after these things. And I think mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it comes down, do we think for the ones that have more potential of chronicity to it, you know, they know that the dog ate like, you know, pieces of a rubber ball six years ago. If the dog hasn't had any clinical signs associated with that, do we bother chasing after that? Whereas if the dog is definitely showing clinical signs or there is significant enough material for us to safely go after and it hasn't had clinical signs yet, then that might be worth for us to either induce emesis or to go after with a scope or surgery. And then you kind of touched on this a little bit, you know, in what we were talking about already, but, you know, we really want to make sure our patient is stable enough to induce emesis. And so, you know, just some major indications that, yeah, we're okay, you know, to go ahead and induce emesis. Uh, you know, how do you assess that with your patient? Do you have just a little checklist or? <laughs> yeah, I think on emergency, uh, we try to drill this into, you know, everyone we, uh, that has to work with us, I guess. But we try to emphasize, you know, perfusion parameters, the ABCs. So we're looking at things like mentation, CRT, mucous membrane color, pulse rate, pulse quality, distal extremity temperature, things like that. Um, I think mentation is a huge one. Uh, and I think depending on the toxin too, uh, one aspect to think about with timing would be, you know, if this is a toxin that's going to affect them, uh, their central nervous system, uh, maybe it's going to cause tremors or seizures. Uh, that's going to also factor into do we perform emesis? Uh, if it's something that's really quickly absorbed and we're worried that they could become clinical before, you know, the induction of emesis happens, that might be, a, you know, a trickier situation. But I think mentation is probably one of the biggest ones just because uh, we don't want to lose that ability to uh, protect their airway because, you know, we don't want to do any harm during the process. And in those cases where you're worried about it, then do you feel like gastric lavage is really the next thing you move to? I would say most of the time it is, uh, given the uh, specific toxicant or uh, ingestion of whatever item you're, you know, you're looking for and the size of that item. Uh, if you know it's going to be bigger than the largest gastric tube you have, then, you know, we might just go ahead and say, well, let's move on. You know, it's always amazing to me the uh, the size of things that dogs will swallow. And you're like, how did you manage to get that all the way down? And then yeah. I'm not <laughs> sure if it can come back up. Um, <laughs> and so I think that that is important for us to consider. But most of the time, if, if it carries a strong enough risk, then we're definitely going to be asking if we can do gastric lavage, which I think a lot of people are actually afraid of, but is <laughs> relatively straightforward to do. And so uh, it's definitely a consideration for us pretty early in the books. 
Yeah, there I know there's some great videos out there on performing gastric lavage, but I'll tell you, you know, as a clinician, it's definitely one that, you know, when you don't do it routinely, it, it worries me. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So. You make hundreds of clinical decisions a day. Make them confidently with the help of Clinician's Brief Algorithm Collection. More than 100 easy-to-follow management trees designed by veterinary experts are available to help you consider all of the differentials and narrow your diagnosis. Order your copy at cliniciansbrief.com algorithms. Okay, so let's get into how to induce emesis. So we're going to start with dogs. And, you know, there's there's emetics that you put on the algorithm and very familiar to a lot of us, apomorphine, hydrogen peroxide. But there's a couple other ones that are that one that I was not familiar with at all and a brand new one. So we'll get to those too. So let's start with apomorphine. You know, I think we can administer this either either intravenously or subconjunctivally. So is there one that you prefer? Is one better? Do you find one more reliable? Is it whatever one you can get? <laughs> A lot of times I think that it is more what is available in your area. Um, uh, distribution of either formulation has been kind of hit or miss uh, over the years. At one juncture, the subconjunctival version was very, very popular. And then it became almost non-existent. And then the IV formulation is often difficult to come by in a sterile form. And so a lot of other veterinarians have also tried a subcutaneous administration of that actually and had mixed results, it seems. And so, but if you're worried about the sterility of that, you know, product, you know, you're like, oh, I'm not sure. Did I use sterile water? Did I use, what did we use in this one? Um, I have seen them try and use that as a potential for a subconjunctival uh, administration as well. That definitely seems to have not had as much success to try to use the IV formulation as hmm. in subconjunctival. I have personally used both. I think that the convenience of the subconjunctival is far superior to the IV form. Personally, uh, you just, you know, put the little beads in their eyes. Uh, it induces emesis. And then once you feel like they've kind of reached the end of their production, then you flush their eye out and it seems to all go away. The IV formulation does take a little bit more time to prepare. And I feel like we spend a lot of time double checking the dose to make sure we give the right dose. And then there's a lot of, has it been 15 minutes? Should I go ahead and give another dose? Maybe I should wait a little bit more. Maybe if we jog up and down the hallway, it will work. But it also seems to be very patient dependent. And so I think the, the, the reviews are mixed on both administration routes. So you mentioned beads and I, I'm not sure I've seen beads. Um, I've always had tablets. And so sometimes we crush the tablet. Well, that was another one of my questions. Do you crush the tablet? Do you leave the tablet whole? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I've seen uh, both. So they actually it used to come in uh, capsule formulation. So there are little beads that you put in. You could actually mm. just open the capsule. Open and the capsule. The Got it. it. Mm -hmm. uh, there is also the tablet formulation. And yeah, we do just advise crushing it up and 
then it just becomes like make sure you're not like caking it all right in one spot in the conjunctiva. Uh, so just kind of trying to sprinkle it along in uh, the edge of their eye there. Yep, which is always pleasant to try to do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, they they're really excited about things coming yeah. at their eye. Um, okay, so let's move on to hydrogen peroxide then. Another one that definitely I've seen controversy. I personally have seen some bad, you know, esophagitis after hydrogen peroxide. But one of the things about it is that, you know, it's oftentimes readily available at home. And so what are possible adverse effects with, with hydrogen peroxide? Yeah, I think with the uh, peroxide, I think one of the big things to double check will be just the concentration. Um, so we usually recommend 3%, uh, but there are higher concentrations. Uh, we don't recommend those because, uh, you know, I, I guess the way I think about it is why does peroxide work in the first place? And so it's irritating the stomach and so then they vomit. And so too much of that is going to irritate, you know, all those tissues. And so that could be the esophagus, that could be, you know, the stomach, uh, that could be the lungs if they aspirate on it, things like that. And so uh, there was an interesting study uh, done a while back where they actually went down and looked with, you know, with the scope as well as getting biopsies. And what they found was those lesions, number one, uh, are very common. Number two, they could be quite severe, uh, you know, severe ulcerations. And then the other surprising thing in that study was uh, those lesions lasted for, you know, up to two weeks. Uh, most of them were around a week or so. So I think the damage that's happening is a lot more uh, than our patients are letting on oftentimes. Uh, so that certainly gives me, you know, a bit of pause before I consider, you know, recommending it. And then... Do you ever recommend for owners that are at home that they administer it themselves? I mean, you know, I'm in Las Vegas now, but practiced up in Reno for a number of years too. And we would have people pretty far out, you know, that can't get into the clinic for at least an hour and a half. So, yeah, I think uh, absolutely. Uh, I'll recommend it. I don't know. Uh, certainly have met some folks that are like, no, 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 that's uh, dangerous. Um, I think for sure we would never give it in a cat. So just want to be clear about that. Uh, they don't tolerate it at all. Uh, for dogs, I think, again, it's going to be a case-by-case -case, uh, situation. Uh, you're looking at your patient. You're looking at what they got into, how far away are they. Um, you know, if it's a, hey, they live 15 minutes from the clinic or they can drive to the store and get peroxide, I'm going to tell them to come to the vet hospital. Uh, if they mm -hmm. live two hours away and they already have some in their house, um, then I think it's a better recommendation. Um, I think things to consider when recommending it would be uh, oftentimes owners don't really know how much their dog weighs. So that could be a point of danger if they miscalculate or kigs versus pounds, that sort of thing. People throw in teaspoons versus tablespoons. And so um, I think helping them out with that math, uh, if possible, to make sure we're you know properly dosing it is going to be important just because you know, they're already stressed out. And uh, when you're stressed, uh, usually I'm not doing math at my best. So mm -hmm. something to be uh, careful about. And, and what is the dose that you're using? Uh, yeah, so dose wise, it kind of depends. You'll hear things anywhere from like one to I think five mils uh, per kig. Uh, you tell an owner that though, and they're like, oh, <laughs> I'm not really sure what that means. Uh, so I think a, a common dose out there is about one teaspoon for every five pounds. And again, double checking that dose, you know, if they tell you I have a Chihuahua and they're like, hey, I use two bottles, you know, clearly that's going to be too much. And so just uh, 
being being nice and helping with math, I think is a, a good thing to do. Uh, I think this particular scenario where you're on the phone with them already, one of the things that we have actually found more helpful, and it sounds, you know, a little bit much, but I think it, it'll go a long way for you is to stay on the phone and walk the client through the process. And so having them go get the bottle of hydrogen peroxide and having them confirm with you the actual concentration of that hydrogen peroxide, making sure that whatever measuring device that they pull out is appropriate for their size dog. Can you pick up your dog with one hand? Is it something that, you know, they're, they're not sure about how much it weighs and you know, okay, well, tell me what kind of, you know, breeds your dog is mixed with. I'm still at a loss if my dog counts as a large breed or a medium sized dog. I have no idea. Uh, and so when they tell you that it's a medium sized dog, that, that means a lot of things to a lot of people. And so giving it something to compare to uh, often helps. And then also asking, do they have someone else there to help them with it? Because the last thing you want to do is strand an owner by themselves trying to force hydrogen peroxide down their throat and potentially getting it you know, in other places like their eyes or in their nares or anything like that. And so I think staying on the phone with the client and walking them through that process is a huge benefit and something I would recommend to a lot of our colleagues. Yeah, that's really wonderful advice. I was just going to ask quick about dosing. Uh, do you cap that in speaking of large breed dogs and giant breed I'm a giant breed dog person. So I had Danes and now I have a French Mastiff. And so that's always one of my, I'm like, do I cap this? Because this is a lot of hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> yeah, the most common uh, maximum dose, I guess, if mm -hmm. there is a cap would be roughly three tablespoons. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Good to know. So let's talk about cats because you said no hydrogen peroxide in cats. And cats, of course, the species that throws up all the time unless you absolutely want it to and then will not throw up at all. <laughs> so we said no hydrogen peroxide, but apomorphine, that's considered a little controversial? Yeah, it's actually been shown that apomorphine has almost no effect at all in cats. I also very recently found out it has almost no effect in pigs. And so it's we're not sure if it's a dosage thing. Yeah, I had a guy come over from Food Animal asking about using it in a pig and apparently it didn't work. Uh, but we're not sure if it is a dosing change that needs to happen with cats or if the entire mechanism isn't the same. But what we do see is clinically, it's not beneficial for us to give apomorphine. Personal experience, I have tried to administer apomorphine to my own cat, and he just sat and stared at me for a good solid half hour. So no, no, no luck there. And so there are other options that we can try with cats. And interestingly enough, most of them are uh, sedatives. And so we use things like xylazine or dexmedetomidine. We can also use hydromorphone, our, you know, our friendly opioid, which we have all seen, I think, at some point. You give a dose of hydromorphone and your patient pukes everywhere and you're like, oh, man. And so the, the lucky Actually part... Actually can be very useful uh, if you're using it as a pre-med for surgery. I have seen Please. so many dogs puke up stuff prior to their spay that I'm like, yes. well, great <laughs> we don't have that anymore <laughs> uh, the the key is pulling it out of the cage before they eat it again um, and so yeah absolutely they're you know alpha 2 agonists are uh, gonna be our biggest tool in inducing emesis in cats and previously uh, 
I think most people use xylazine in cats. And as dexmedetomidine has become more available and more people have become comfortable using it and it's not controlled, then we have made the switch over to using dexmedetomidine. So most of the time now you're using dexmedetomidine just because it's it's easier. Mm-hmm. Grab it quicker. Okay. Um, and then what about if it's successful, which we hope that it is successful, but if it's successful, then do you reverse it? always you just let them sleep what if I think it is dependent number one on the temperament of the patient and number two the downstream effects of inducing emesis so definitely we have some patients that once they start the process of vomiting it's very difficult for them to stop they just kind of get they start retching over and over again it's kind of like you know a bad case of the hiccups once you get them going just nothing you do seems to make it stop it just eventually has to wear itself out but overall the emetic effects of the drugs are relatively short-lived the sedation effects If you feel like you're looking for clinical signs associated with a toxin that might be masked by sedation, then definitely we want to go ahead and reverse the patient. So both xylazine and dexmedetomidine can be reversed with adipamazole, and your hydromorphone can be reversed with naloxone if needed. And so especially if you're worried about your toxin having mentation changes, we want to go ahead and give that reversal. That makes sense. Just take that out of the equation so we know what we're dealing with. So one of the things that gets a lot of attention on the veterinary groups on social media and sometimes in VIN is the chair spin for cats. Have you heard of the chair spin? We have, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Have you done the chair spin? Do you recommend it? Does it work? (laughs) Uh, I guess uh, for me... You know, it's certainly something to consider. I think uh, you have to ask yourself, how is your day going? Uh, Who else is working with you? Uh, We have the pleasure of working with students. And so, you know, if the we're worried that the cat's not going to vomit, we've got a somewhat gullible student uh, who will sit in a spinning chair for us. That might encourage us to try it out a little bit more. But I think, you know, Uh, If we go back to why do people vomit, I think we've all gone on a fair ride and, you know, want to vomit afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so I think, could it help? I think certainly it can. Uh, Is it something we're routinely doing? Uh, Not really. Um, I think, you know, depending on how you're spinning, I think you have to be clear that you're sitting on the chair with the uh, patient and then spinning. Uh, You're not like grabbing the, you know, cat by the legs and just, you know, spinning in a circle. Um, so just being, uh, you know, clear in your directions are important as well. So good to know. Yeah, I had, um, I do know, I think sometimes people will keep them in their carrier so that they're also contained and safe and not just free spinning in a chair. (laughs) Probably safest for the spinner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's jump back to dogs just for a second, because they're actually, since this article was published, there has been a new product. It's actually the first FDA approved anti-emetic in dogs here in the U.S. And so that is uh, Ropinerol. And have you, have you worked with it at all? Have you used it? How does it work? Yeah, no, uh, that's a new drug. Uh, we've, I don't think you haven't worked with it, have you, Gherkin? No. So we have not worked with it. Uh, we did uh, discuss it as far as, you know, getting some and trying it out. Um, I think we're right now fortunate enough that apomorphine is pretty easy for us to get. And so 
we haven't really had a strong push to get some, but I, I think certainly we do want to try it. Um, I think, you know, if we take a step back and look at kind of how do these uh, agents work, and, you know, this one is going to target kind of those dopamine receptors uh, in the chemoreceptor trigger zone. So, you know, it's designed to cause vomiting. And so that certainly, you know, has its appeal. But unlike uh, apomorphine that has kind of those opioid effects as well, this one seems to be a little bit cleaner in what uh, effects it's going to cause. Uh, there's also kind of the different route of administration. So it's an eye drop. And so certainly uh, that's going to be probably easier to do than, you know, trying to, you know, hit a vein, depending on the patient as well. Or like we were talking, sprinkle those be beads evenly <laughs> right. along the conjunctiva. <laughs> yeah. And so I think there's a, a lot of promise with it. I think uh, the studies have shown that it works fairly well, has pretty uh, similar success rates as uh, uh, apomorphine. But yeah, I personally don't have any experience with it yet, unfortunately. I haven't either. I haven't gotten to use it yet. So, but something on the horizon that I, I hope, you know, works really well. I don't hope I get a case that need I need to induce emesis in. I certainly don't want to wish that on a patient, but kind of excited to use it. Maybe, you know, if we, we get one in. And then actually there was one more. I apologize. I missed a, a medic that was on your algorithm in dogs because I had no idea that, that this worked for emesis and that's tranexamic acid. So, you know, that medication I had always thought was kind of an adjunct treatment for bleeding. So how does that one work? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, TXA, I think, has recently become a pretty popular drug kind of in the trauma world. And so most people have, you know, heard of it in uh, for that use. Um, I think it kind of goes back to just what's available in different countries. And so uh, studies in Japan, I think they don't have as, you know, uh, availability of apomorphine. And so they've had to become more creative, I guess, in their options. And when they were doing studies with TXA, they realized that a lot of dogs would vomit when they got it. And so then they use that side effect as the effect that they wanted. And they've done some studies looking at that, and it's shown to be uh, pretty effective as a, a medic. So I think it just means, you know, when you're working emergency, you have to just adapt to kind of your environment. And maybe one day, uh, you know, you knock over your supply of uh, apomorphine or the pills go down the toilet or something mm -hmm. on accident. Uh, but if you have TXA, you know, it might uh, help you out in a pinch. Oh, that's a good thing to have in your back pocket. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And then finally, before we wrap up, are any emetics that like we that they used to use or, you know, you're practicing with the the older vet that's like, oh, yeah, we did this all the time that maybe we shouldn't be using any longer? Uh, yeah, the most common one I think that we still see on a regular basis is going to be salt. Yes. Uh, and so there are still a number of clients that will let us know that, yeah, we gave a huge amount of salt to our dog of just, you know, table salt to try and induce emesis. And for the most part, we know that in a, a lot of situations, it's not successful. And now we're dealing with a huge salt load in our patient on top of a toxicant that may or may not also affect electrolytes or uh, gastric absorption. And so the salt itself can be a, uh, a gastric irritant or a GI irritant, depending on the amount that they got. 
And it can also be a huge agent to pull fluid into the GI tract and cause your patient to become severely dehydrated. And so it's not something, it's not one of our favorite ones to hear uh, whenever they come in and uh, the owners tell us that. And so we have to monitor their electrolytes and their, their hydration status pretty closely. Another one of my favorites is uh, either detergent or soap, uh, liquid soap. And so uh, that one also has the potential to cause actual toxicant effects. And so it can cause corrosive lesions along the GI tract. Um, it also has a tendency to emulsify uh, since it is soap. And so what a little bit, uh, what the owner thought was just a little bit of soap going down uh, the throat ends up being a massive quantity that you're trying to uh, either lavage out, which is going to take quite a while, or will also kind of add a detergent effect to the GI tract itself. We're starting to see less, I feel like, of the Ipecac syrup um, mm-hmm. and like the the mustard powder that people used to keep around, but do- those still occasionally do grace our doors or people call and say, this is what I've tried, and you kind of cringe on the inside a little bit um, in terms of, oh, well, did it help at all? No. And so now you're still encouraging them to come in, but you might be dealing with uh, some potential side effects with those agents as well as the original toxin. Uh, The one that we definitely don't want to promote, especially on the phone uh, with clients, is digital induction. So we don't want anybody sticking their hands uh, down our our pet's throats to try (laughs) and uh, try to induce emesis, you know. But people do try, and so we're trying to keep everybody safe and make sure that uh, no one gets injured. And uh, it also has a low rate of success when it comes down to it. Most time, most people just end up getting bitten. Oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. (laughs) This might be a little bit of a hot take, but uh, I think if you're really, really, really in a pinch, uh, you might consider giving uh, dish soap, specifically dish soap. Uh, Like Dr. Gherkin was saying, if you use laundry detergent or the dishwasher uh, soap, those are actually uh, can be corrosive. Um, And so those are definitely more dangerous. You know, the Tide Pod challenge and all that uh, uh, phase of our lives uh, have taught us that those can be quite dangerous. Uh, But if you are in a pinch and you don't have peroxide or anything, I think uh, worst case scenario, you could try a little bit of just liquid Dawn or, you know, dish soap. Uh, but again, we don't recommend those routinely or if ever, or we try to avoid those. But uh, the just important to keep in mind that soaps are created uh, not equally. So That's good to know, especially if somebody says they gave soap. Probably a good idea to follow up with what kind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, those were all my questions about emesis. Thank you so much. That was great. Before we go, so we normally play a little game at the end of the episode, and uh, I ask our guests some would you rather questions, you know, just fly by the seat of your pants, answer, shout out the first answer. But we're going to modify it a little bit for you both today, since I have two of you. So instead of playing Would You Rather, we're going to play more of an I agree or I disagree. So Dr. Gherkin and Dr. Ko, I've had them already write up a little card with agree on one side and disagree on the other. And then I'm going to read a statement and you guys are just going to hold up your card and then I'll let you know whether or not you both agree with each other (laughs) and with the statement. All right. You guys want to play? Let's do it. Love it. Good. I'm not sure what I would have done if you had said no. So. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right, here we go. So number one, I would rather place a catheter in a dehydrated kitten than an obese pug. Oh, they both agree. Kittens, yes. Pugs, no. All right. Number two, I would rather be stuck on the phone with a frustrated breeder than a frustrated human nurse. Oh, we disagree here. So Dr. Ko agrees. He wants to talk to the breeder, but Dr. Gherkin would rather talk with the nurse. All right. Next one. Injectable Meropitant smells exactly like Band-Aids. Agree. Yes, I do too. It absolutely does. <laughs> this is good. All right. Next one. I would rather practice without radiography than practice without ultrasonography. Oh, another agree and disagree. <laughs> Dr. Gherkin wants her radiographs and Dr. Ko needs his ultrasound. That's why we work together. <laughs> That's <laughs> balance. <laughs> balance each other out. All right. So final question. And um, I always save the most important to last. All right. So if you had a centaur walk into the ER with a recent toxin ingestion, you would consider it safe to induce amesis, even though you're not supposed to induce amesis in horses. <laughs> okay, so we have another, another split. Dr. Ko says it's fine, induce amesis, because the upper half is a person. And Dr. Gherkin says no way, because... Well, I, and I agree with you because could you imagine throwing up all of that stuff in a horse's stomach? That would like, yeah. that'd be awful. <laughs> yeah. And you don't know where, like, do they have two stomachs? Cause it's like the I top half of a person. But they got but... abs, you know, a six pack. That's yeah, but the they also get like a horse's body. <laughs> That's you know? just like the, the under part. <laughs> it's like literally the front legs are the only thing missing. Undercarriage. Yeah. <laughs> Undercarriage. No, that's twice as much goo. I'm not interested. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to throw that up either. <laughs> All right, you guys, you did it. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thanks again to today's guest for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at cliniciansbrief and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka, and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson. <laughs>